0: Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we continue our episode on questions about atonement theory. Scott, so we had a good first round of questions, covered a a lot of different things from different thinkers to um, the simplistic model and approach of what's atonement versus salvation. I promised at the end of last episode that we would start with this question, so I think if you're good with it, we'll just jump right in here, Um, and it's with Josh Beatty's question, and he asks, I read a book in seminary by Roy Harrisville called Fracture. I remember his premise was atonement is beyond the scope of language and all atonement theories fall short. Do you agree and does this open up the door to future metaphors describing the atonement?
1: I have never read Roy Harrisville's book. I haven't even heard that title and um, I'm disappointed I haven't. I've uh, read a few things by Harrisville over the years and I've enjoyed him. Um, uh, I like the title, Fracture. Uh, let me say it this way. The first thing is I would say that atonement theories are all inadequate in the sense that not no one atonement theory explains all that God did for us on the cross in who Jesus was and in his Incarnation and Resurrection, Ascension, and Return. So I would agree, uh, if if that's what Harrisville meant, I would agree that no one atonement theory explains it all. I would also agree with Roy Harrisville, if this is what he says. I'm relying on someone's sketch of, of Harrisville. I would also agree that all the atonement theories together still do not touch the fullness of God's grace and what He's done for us in Christ. So I would say yes, yes, by all means. We we may need to use other images because we live in a different world, and we might we just might need to uh, use some images that help people in our world uh, understand atonement uh, in ways that that resonate with them. So I'm I'm all for that. But here's what I would say: yes, but. And and here's the here's the but whatever atonement theory that we come up with uh, I'll, I'll use an example first I remember when John Stott wrote his book on preaching and John Stott is a famous uh, almost biblicist type guy and, and I like that mm-hmm. but John Stott uh, used went through some of the images for pastors and preachers et cetera in the New Testament. And in the end, he said, but I'm going to use one of my own, and that is that a pastor, a preacher, is a bridge builder. All right. So he, he went with an image that is not used in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, uh, and nor is it a big image in the history of the church, uh, because he thought it would explain what he was trying to say in a little bit more complete way than uh, what is is on offer. So I would say this about atonement. Yes, we may need to use other images. And let's just say that I played with the image in our last episode of a, of, of a dentist and a tooth and an infection in a tooth. Um, So that would be another image uh, that we could use. And I've heard other people use other images. The point that I would make the, but is this, that whatever image we use should be both consistent with the images uh, that are used in the Bible and at the same time not inconsistent or contradictory to those images. And that's where I think we can run into problems saying, well, the Bible says it this way, Um, And the Bible is connected to the ancient world, and we just don't explain things like that anymore. So therefore, let's look at it this way, and then all of a sudden, there are people raising hands and throwing up red flags, saying, but, 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 this is what the Bible says. So I would say, yes, uh, we need to use other images, but they need to be consistent with what the Bible says, and not inconsistent with what the Bible says.
0: Yeah, it has to be rooted in something and grounded. And it's, not, yeah. it's not free to yeah. make up whatever we want because it yeah. fits our perspective. Uh, well, that, that flows into a, a good question about the thing that we get rooted in and, um, and what we're called to do with the gospel. And John Fortner asked this, Is he asked, how do you connect the gospel of the kingdom to atonement theory?
1: You know, this is a this is an interesting question, and it's not as simple as a lot of people like to make it, um, because uh, what I've paid attention to, and uh, I wrote this up in Kingdom Conspiracy, um, is I've been interested in kingdom language for a long time, and I I taught Jesus in the Gospels. That was one of my primary areas of teaching and writing for. Uh, three decades of my academic career plus my doctoral work and if you pay attention to the way a lot of people talk about kingdom you can come up to the point where you say well when we talk about kingdom we don't have to talk about the cross because I'm not sure how it fits Mm -hmm. when we have a theory of kingdom that doesn't need the cross we got a problem on our hands uh because Jesus obviously thought that he he says I came not to be served but to serve and give my life a ransom for many and if that ransoming act of the son of man mark 10:45 is not connected to kingdom then we got we have a major problem and that is one reason why in my book on kingdom of god I said, we have got to be more biblical in our understanding of kingdom. And here's what's going on. Uh, What I call the skinny jeans kingdom theory, and that is uh, that uh, it is when good people do good things for the common good, uh, it doesn't matter who those good people are, um, when kingdom work is barely distinguishable or indistinguishable, from public works of goodness and benevolence and social justice, then cross becomes probably only an example of Jesus giving his life for others. But I try to demonstrate in Kingdom Conspiracy that kingdom has five themes. There is a king and there is a king who rules but he rules by way of redeeming, ransoming, rescuing. Um, We could think of the Exodus here and we think of the cross. He rules by way of ransoming and then governing. So the king rules by saving people and governing them, and he rules a people. So it is a king who rules a people who gives them a land... I mean, a law to follow, and he places them in a land. Dale Allison is one, so also is Jonathan Pennington. Some of these uh, new studies of kingdom have demonstrated, without question, kingdom cannot be separated from territory, from land. So when we understand kingdom to be the rule of the king, Jesus, who rules by way of saving and by way of governing, and gives to the people a law that can be fulfilled in the spirit, and gives them an embodied space in which to live this out, then all of a sudden, atonement language and kingdom language are far more harmonious. In other words, the king rules by saving, and one way the king, I mean... The revelation of the king's way of saving in the New Testament is the cross. So atonement is how God creates the people over whom he rules, uh, over whom he governs his people, and it is the atoned for people who are given the law and who are capable of fulfilling the will of God through the power of the Spirit and who embody it in a church and in a people. So therefore, I think we can connect atonement to kingdom, but when kingdom is restricted to social justice Mm -hmm. and the good people doing good things for the common good, then atonement gets uh, vitiated or it gets eradicated and eliminated, and becomes such a minor note that people are no longer hearing it.
0: Yeah, it, it kind of seems like it goes back to last episode's question about salvation and how atonement is about means. And um, you know, in this situation, in regards to entering the kingdom, being a part of the kingdom, doing all of those um, things and the elements that you talked about that accompany uh, that. Um, that make up the kingdom, the atonement is the means by which we enter into that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hmm, Yeah. I, I agree. So,
0: um, to, along the lines of the um, kind of greater story of Scripture and the, the way atonement is used throughout, one person asks, how does the Day of Atonement from Leviticus factor in? We talked about the context of Passover and specifically with Jesus and the Last Supper and His crucifixion um, in regards to atonement as that being such a central context to really understand what Jesus was accomplishing in His death, but um, this person asked. What does that theme of atonement in the Yom Kippur of
1: Leviticus have to factor in? Okay, I mean, this is a good question. And and part of it is because um, in Christian theology, in the atonement theory, this is very interesting to me, is that Day of Atonement has become the dominant image for how we understand the atonement but it is not the image that Jesus used. Jesus very explicitly talks about uh, the significance of his cross in atonement language uh, twice—Mark ten forty-five and Mark fourteen twenty-four. In those two passages, he is appealing not to Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement, but to Passover. Jesus did not die on the Day of Atonement. He he died in connection with the Feast of Passover. So one thing I would want to say is that the New Testament's earliest themes of atonement are Passover themes more than Day of Atonement themes. But in the Old Testament, we have a Day of Atonement in the seventh month. They have this congregation or this sacred assembly, and they are to deny themselves, and that is... About repentance and about fasting. And they are to present um, a pleasing, an aroma that is pleasing to the Lord because they present a burnt offering of a young bull, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old, all without defect. All right. And they are to put these, uh, they are to offer these uh, in the temple. So uh, this becomes. One of the golf clubs in the bag, Mm -hmm. one of the images that are used, and one of the themes of atonement theory that we need to exploit. And that is that there needs to be uh, a sinless sacrifice that is utterly consumed and therefore one that brings atonement and atonement is a is a is a big concept in Old Testament theological debates uh, of scholars, and I do not want to put myself in a position of being wrong on some of these things because I know how I, I've heard some of these Old Testament scholars really debate what's going on on atonement and blood in the Old Testament. But I want to say that what we get there is another kind of image that we need to talk about is that Jesus is the sinless sacrifice who is utterly consumed in the cross and as a result of that brings atonement, the covering of sin, so that we might be forgiven and participate um, in a um, kosher or a pure relationship with God and we can be reconciled to God. So therefore, I would say... uh, Yom Kippur is one of the images that we need to use when we talk about atonement.
0: That's good. So we've covered a lot of great questions so far. Doing great, Scott. Just let me throw them at you, rapid fire, one after the other. Um, you got time for and energy for you two more questions to wrap up our conversation all right yeah let's do it okay so um brie asked this she asked could you talk more about how holiness and love are not opposite poles in who god is but how we might hold these either together or in tension the ideas themselves or in the related theories of atonement which we've kind of—we've hit on a little bit, but I thought Bergie's question was um, uh, pretty good and her specific question of how we might hold these together in tension. Uh,
1: I think that this is really an important question, and it's not one that—I don't I don't think, Chaz, that we've we've brought this up too much. I, uh-huh. I think in the original webinar, yeah, I did talk about this holiness thing. Mm-hmm. Holiness is understood by people today almost at times— like it's the wrath of God, it's the holy revulsion of God against sin, Mm -hmm. and I think "Eh." Uh, if God is holy in his being, it's got to be gloriously beautiful in its meaning Mm -hmm. Uh, we cannot make holiness a negative and think that we're going to attribute it to the very being and character of God. So uh, I, I've i written a piece in a Feshrif article for someone I will not uh, use his name for right now, uh, and I developed something that I had begun to develop in, in my book, Fellowship of Difference. Holiness is understood. For instance, I saw this in Kevin DeYoung's book. Uh, holiness is understood... Uh, as separation from sin. Uh, That is a Mm half-truth. Holiness is more than separation. Holiness is about the presence of God. When God is present, holiness is there. Holiness on our part is an openness to the presence of God that draws us into the presence of God, so it becomes devotion to God, turning to God, moving into God's presence, accepting God's presence. And as a result of our devotion to God and God's presence of holiness, we are separated from sin. So holiness is, first of all, about the presence of God our being drawn into the presence of God, because we move toward God, we move away from sin. Mm -hmm. So let's just say those three elements have to be involved in holiness. So therefore, if, if the presence of God is holy, we can also say that the presence of God is love. And I like to say that holiness and love are two sides of the same coin. They are um, integrated elements of the being of God and the character of God. Holiness is not the opposite end on a spectrum of love. It is fully enmeshed in love. So, So, you could say love is holiness in action Mm -hmm. and you can say holiness is love in action Mm -hmm. so when we if God's presence is love and it is a holy love because it is utterly perfect then holiness and love are far closer in meaning that one is not God's anger and one is God and and the other God's goodness but holiness and love are integrated into the very character of God, and they are—they are not just compatible. These are these are mutually indwelling. Um, attributes of God.
0: Absolutely, and it's what we most clearly see in Jesus, and I like your line about being into meaning, and I think that is so true for for this concept of holiness, that you look at the holiest person who has ever walked the face of the earth. It, it was Jesus, and he's our representation and understanding of, of who God was, and That representation isn't one who is simply separate, though he was separate from us in, you know, in in sinfulness of never having uh, uh, sin in his life, but that didn't lead him further away from others. It brought him closer to, and it sent him on mission. And I think that's that other side of the same coin that you're talking about is being holy, being different, which is, you know, like you said, one of the ways that we define it is not just to be different for different sake. Holiness is about being different so we can make a difference and what God's called us to do into the lives of others, because others are who desire that holiness, who desire that relationship with God, even though they may not have language for it or understand it in that moment and in that time, there's something that 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 cries out for them and they desire, because at the end of the day, that's what God created and designed us for. And, and they see that in us. And when we are holy, I think we create that opportunity, rather God creates that opportunity through us to make that connection. And, um, and, and totally right. They're not, they're not something that should be separated.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
0: Uh, Great. Okay. So last question here from Dan Page and he asks, how do you com- how do you compensate rather for how our culture and experience as Americans for those of us who are Americans and I'm glad he added that because we do have people listen from all over the world, which is pretty cool um, so How do you, excuse me, I'm just going to restart the question there. How do you compensate for how our culture and experience as Americans in the 21st century impacts not just what we see, but how we see it in the scriptures? There are so many expressions of the church, some seemingly great, some not so much.
1: Well, this is a bigger question than atonement from what, uh, from what I'm taking from the question. Is that right, Chaz?
0: Yeah, I think it is, yeah. and I think it, um, I think it just prompted him to, to ask it and how we've talked about metaphors and some different things like that. Yeah.
1: Well, um, let, let's put it this way. In the Old Testament, uh, atonement is connected to a sacrificial system. Uh, I've recently been reading about Pompeii and Rome, and if you if you look at Pompeii, Pompeii was filled with temples where there were animal sacrifices, and all these temples, believe that's where God dwelled. It's not where people gathered for worship. They went there and offered a sacrifice and went home, um, and they left it to the to the God uh, to be in that place. Uh, so, th- those that's the language that is used in the Old Testament for atonement is because. That's integral to that world. In the New Testament, we get different images that we don't see so much in the Old Testament, like, like justification. Now, I, I don't want to suggest that this is a new idea in the New Testament, uh, but there is, there is this idea of being declared right uh, in spite of being sinful because of a substitutionary atonement in who uh, Christ is and what he has done for us. And we have language like redemption, and we have the divine mercy seat, and we have all these other images, and they're connected to that world. And one of the things that I think is fundamental uh, in gospel preaching and in teaching and in interpretation in Christian theologizing is that every generation, in every culture, this is where Our Americanism impacts us, and we think it's the only culture that exists, and it's not. Every generation in every culture will will find ways to communicate the deep tradition of the church in a way that is both faithful to the tradition and clever and relevant and innovative for its own uh, generation. So, for instance, let let me give a couple examples. I I find um, that in in my life of academic work that there have been a few books that have come along and have just completely jumped off the page and people just completely resonated with it because this was not only um, rigorous scholarship, but it was at the same time saying something to a generation and that generation needed to hear it. Here's one example, E.P. Sanders, when he wrote Paul and Palestinian Judaism, in a world where universities were starting to develop religion departments, the book just soared to the top of interest and so many people read it in such a mesmerizing way. I was there and I remember it. The next book that was like this in my life was when N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, wrote his book, uh, The New Testament and the People of God, I think it was about 1992. Um, and, and then he wrote Jesus and the Victory of God to, to jump on top of that. Those books said things that really resonated with people. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they really captured. When Richard Hayes wrote Reading uh, the Gospels Backwards, People just, I was shocked at the interest of that book on on my blog. Um, Randy Richards, and I think his name is Brandon O'Brien, wrote a book on hermeneutics, uh, or interpretation about reading the Bible with Western eyes, that really jumped off the page for evangelical Christians. Um Stanley Hauerwas has communicated things to people in ways that uh, our generation is really responding to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke in a very particular period, in a very particular way that resonated with people and still resonates with people. I could go on and on, but the point I'm making is this, is that every generation in every culture has to find its prophetic Voice, it has to find its way to speak the old gospel in fresh, exhilarating ways to a new generation. And so, when when um, when the question is asked, uh, that's what comes to my mind: is that we need to find our prophetic voice in our day just as other voices were found that way in the pages of the Bible. Because if you read through the Bible, you realize that no it's not like we get a couple definitions of terms in Genesis one, one and everybody's paying attention to how those words are used and they never use them differently. You get to Deuteronomy and then you get to the you get to Proverbs And you get to Ecclesiastes and you get to Job and you get to Isaiah. One prophet after another is using all kinds of different images. And you'd think that the Old Testament would be filled with language about Messiah, and it's not. And then you find Jesus using this term and the early church using this term, and you find Jesus using kingdom. And Paul said, Kingdom's a great idea. It was a good word for Jesus, but I'm going to use other terms. And the book of Hebrews. And so we, we get a template in the pages of the Bible of different language games in different contexts are how God has learned, uh, how God has communicated with us, and we have to learn to have that same kind of linguistic and hermeneutical sensitivity in our world. That was a bit of a sermon.
0: Yeah, but, and, but I think it helps us wrap up, you know, just, yeah. just think about different things like atonement. It wasn't a specific atonement question, but um, has particular implications for that. So to yeah. end our time, any closing thoughts to send people away? I know we've, we've definitely probably only scratched the surface in the, a concept like of atonement, but um, we have talked about a number of things. Any closing thoughts to send people away with?
1: Well, to me, uh, you know, even the people, there are other questions that can be asked. There were sure. other questions that were asked that we're, we weren't able to get to, but I think we've given some general uh, categories of how to think about atonement. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is not an exhausting, a- exhaustive, and comprehensive analysis. Uh, this is not a book. This is just a conversation that we're having about important topics. And to me, uh, I I think we need to dwell on the richness of God's grace and love to take the infection that is found in us to acknowledge it, Mm -hmm. to deal with it, to remove it, and to heal us so that we might be healthy people, sound and firm in our faith and obedient in our lives. Uh, And I think that's what uh, atonement is all about. So I... I think we need to dwell on the goodness of God and the richness of of the images about atonement.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Scott. And thank you, our listeners, as always, for joining us. We um, appreciate the opportunity to be a part of this conversation with you. And thank you for all you who joined in and sent us questions. Those were helpful. And, um, and we enjoyed getting to hear from you, as always. So um, again, hope you're having a, a great day after you listen to this. And we're grateful, as always, to have you with us. So um, look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.